everybody. Welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 61. My name is Charles Lowell. I'm a developer here at the Frontside. With me also is Mr. Robert DeLuca, a developer at the Frontside. And today we have with us Marcy Sutton, who is going to be talking with us a little bit about accessibility, both in the large and the small. So welcome, Marcy. Good morning, everyone. Happy to be here. I know. I understand you're actually calling us from the parking lot of a ski area. I am. I am at the legendary Mount Baker ski area outside of Bellingham, Washington, where we have the winter that is just going on and on and on. And yeah, getting after it on the last few days of my birthday vacation. Oh, wait. Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. <laughs> happy you. belated or is it belated? <laughs> happy birthday. Yeah, it was last <laughs> Sunday. So still in that shiny birthday week. Yeah. Well, thank you for getting with us on your vacation and on your birthday, but doing a little bit of work. Now, you actually uh, work at DQ Labs. What is it that uh, you guys do over there? And what are the, what's the, your particular area of interest and work there? DQ is an accessibility-only company, and so we have people who work on products and services for accessibility. We help people avoid lawsuits and make their websites and mobile apps more accessible to people with disabilities. And my slice of that work is on the product team, where I work on browser extensions, APIs for developers, basically to make it so you don't have to write every single accessibility tool or test yourself. You can pull in these APIs and get some of that experience that DQ has built up for years and years and years, which was part of the reason I went to work there was to learn from them. And so we make tools that make it easy for you to make use of that knowledge in your applications. That's awesome. So it's like it's a base JavaScript library that can be ported anywhere, like to browser extensions to like, I know uh, we use it in Ember accessibility testing. That's really cool. That's kind of where I've gone for the way I write JavaScript is in a base library so everybody can use it and and it's even more awesome that it's testing it's like wrapping tooling around accessibility because i know a lot of developer minded people want to see like a failed build yeah so what what does that experience look like i mean coming from someone who might who's never even heard of these tools you know how would i integrate them into my project and what would change about my workflow what information would it surface well, the best place that, I mean, and the reason I work on these products is that I saw projects go out the door broken a lot of times when working in agencies where maybe testing isn't part of your methodology. And personally, in my career, I just knew there had to be a better way. And so I got into software testing. And the more I learned about it, the more I saw that it was sustainable. Uh, you could pull in other APIs to help you write better tests. And so I went to work on AxeCore which is the JavaScript library that we talked about a second ago, that really is bottling up all of these uh, accessibility tests that you can automate some of the accessibility checks for things like if your HTML markup is in a good state and you're using attributes correctly and basically saving you from having to write all of those little micro tests, which some of which can be sort of complicated. So it's all about getting test coverage for the automated things that we can actually test for. And so it sounds like there's actually, you described a pretty wide ranging coverage. So how do you go about actually implementing like that into your CI process? Do you just install the, the Axe core and, and, and how do you like, do you have to load up your browser and then point it at it? Or what does that look like? Yeah. So ideally you would already have a test suite and you could just pull in a test harness. So there's all different versions of Axe. There's, you know, versions in JavaScript and in Node. And so the core thing that you need to test is get your app running in a browser, whether it's a headless browser or it could be a mounted browser. But we need those actual DOM browser APIs to check things like color content 
contrast. We need to, you know, be sort of coupled to the DOM so that we can run our full set of tests, which is sort of a distinction from, say, some shallow rendering that you might be doing in React testing or something like that. For accessibility tests, we need an actual DOM. So you could get Axcore on NPM and then, you know, pull it into your project. And then you basically just, you know, either require or import it depending on, you know, what your stack looks like in JavaScript. And then you have access to all of these tests. So it's pretty useful since our ecosystem has evolved to cover things like NPM. I found that it works pretty well. That is pretty neat. So like you, you, you require it into your test and then you visit a page um, that's fully rendered. And then you do like X check, like you call a method that runs all of these checks. Exactly. Yeah, you would call X.run and then you configure it to run either specific tests or just one test. So one of the tricks that has been helpful to know is that if you disable the color contrast rule, you don't need quite as many of the DOM APIs. So it will run faster in things like JS DOM which doesn't implement the entire browser APIs. But you you could call axe.run either in your unit tests or more likely it would be in your integration tests because you'd already have a browser instance either through Selenium WebDriver or Karma Chrome Launcher or something like that. And then you you basically call axe.run, pass it a callback function, and then it will return to you a set of JSON results. And then you can do things with those. Yeah. Can you, like, when you call run, can you pass, uh, like, options of what you want to check? Like, can you filter out things that you know might? Because I imagine, like, if you'd put this into an existing app that's been going for a while, I imagine you're going to get a bunch of fails and it might be overwhelming. Is there a way to, like, kind of peel it back like an onion and start working at it that way? Yes, you you can get pretty specific with our API. And so the GitHub for Axcore has our entire API configuration. And so you can get pretty specific. You could filter by tags. So each of these rules, and um, I imagine we're going to talk a little bit more about what WCAG is, but there's a set of <laughs> set of standards that you can break accessibility down into things that you can actually assert that they are either accessible or not. There's all different kinds of what we call success criteria. And so all of our rules are mapped to these actual guidelines and standards, because that means that our tests are helping you solve things that are actually helpful. And so you could filter by the different levels and, you know, maybe you want to configure it with custom rules. We have some additional products for that. And so, yeah, you can get pretty specific with what you want it to run. Oh, cool. So it's extensible, too. So you can add your own stuff. You can. Yeah. And we do a lot of work with some of our clients to actually help them write custom rules. So that's a service that we offer. But the the API is pretty configurable on the JavaScript side. So you can do quite a bit of configuring on your own as well which is cool. That is pretty awesome. So you alluded to WCAG. I guess so now we know how you can uh, integrate a testing library into your JavaScript apps. Let's take a step back a little bit and what exactly is accessibility? And then that can then infer like you can start explaining like WCAG because WCAG is a, a very big document that tells you how to go and be accessible, right? I assume WCAG is some acronym? It is. Yes. Yes. So, uh, well, peeling that back a little bit to what is accessibility. Accessibility is all about making the web, because I'm more on the digital side. There is physical accessibility as well for spaces. But when we're talking about digital accessibility, we're talking about making apps and websites that work for people with a broad range of abilities. So say you had colorblindness or low vision or you're fully blind, you would need to be able to zoom in. You need high contrast colors, Uh, you might use a screen reader if you're blind, but then there's other categories of people, and people might actually fall into more than one category. 
including motor disabilities, where maybe you can't use a mouse and you have to use a keyboard only, or a keyboard with one button, which is how we think about a switch control. That's another device. Uh, you might be deaf or hard of hearing and need transcripts or closed captions, so any audio or video content needs an, an alternative of some kind. And then there's cognitive disabilities, where people have learning disabilities. Um, maybe the language used on a website is too vague or too marketing copy speak, and we need to simplify. People with traumatic brain injury, and uh, like Stephen Hawking had ALS or has ALS, and so there's so many different kinds of people that I discovered at some point in my career that I could actually make the web a better place by supporting all different kinds of people. And so that's really what it's about for me is doing good craftsmanship and making sure that you're actually making things as accessible as you can. So the WCAG thing that we mentioned, it stands for Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And it's just that. It's a set of guidelines, sort of a map to help you get there. You have to actually interpret those guidelines and put in the work to do it. The guideline is just a guideline, but um, it gives us a really good roadmap of how to implement all of these different areas of accessibility. So I had I actually had a question, um, and this is a little bit harkening back to the, the discussion about the, the Axe Core, but also kind of straddling this is how do you spur adoption of both the technology and the value inside of your development team? Because one of the things, you know, we definitely make our web apps as accessible as we can because we have Rob uh, on the team. But for teams that don't have Rob, how do you spur adoption? How do you pitch it to your team and to your management structure? Because I feel as though... Like testing, you know, testing used to be controversial. I think in some pockets it still is, but it was something that you had to pitch or, you know, agile methodologies was something that you had to pitch. Now it's kind of accepted. It's a, it's a core value of development, I think. <laughs> I hope. Definitely more so. I agree. Do you see a future uh, where, you know, making applications accessible is just a tenet of development in the modern era and how do we get to that point like how do we pitch our teams to adopt that value part of what i'm trying to do is meet developers where they're at and make tools that make it really easy and free to integrate things so it doesn't cost you anything to npm install a library and pull it into your project or to use a free browser extension so what we're trying to do is mm -hmm really help developers get there by lowering the barriers, which is <laughs> kind of a funny way to put it, because that's what we're doing with accessibility, yeah. is removing barriers for people to get access to things. And so I'm pretty optimistic about it. I mean, we talk a lot in the accessibility world about education is really needed, because often it's just that people don't know about it. So I've made it my, my mission to spread the word as much as possible by doing talks and blog posts and just trying to get as many people on board as possible instead of making them feel bad about it like oh you didn't know about this you're terrible it's like, oh, you oh didn't man know you're, about this? you're speaking to me you can do this <laughs> so i try to bring people along and make them feel welcome because it's not really a fun experience to be like oh you're bad because you didn't do this you didn't think about this thing so yeah. that's what i try to do one of my first experiences in accessibility was like somebody giving me that moral argument like you're ruining like people's lives they can't do the things lecture. on the computer yeah and it's, it's like 
I, I just remember the response I had and it wasn't that, oh, you're right, I should go make this accessible. It was more like I had like a flight or fight response. Like I started to try to justify the reasons I didn't do it and that wasn't a good experience. So the way you put it, like meet the developers where they're at, I love that. Because that's kind of how I've been operating too. I, I think accessibility is just another engineering problem. Um, and it can be a, uh, an engineering problem that would be fun to solve. The uh, accessibility matrix kind of gets uh, really hard and hairy as you get into it. Like, um, Oops, jargon alert. So what is the accessibility <laughs> matrix? Oh, uh, so ex- yes, the accessibility. <laughs> the accessibility matrix has you, Neo. Uh, <laughs> so like that's uh, the, the different AT combos. Um, and since my experience stems from um, screen, Readers and since my mom is technologies. Yeah, assistive, assistive technologies. Technology, I'm, uh... I'm doing a poor job here. <laughs> so basically, you have three levels that you work with here. It's the operating system, the type of assistive technology, and the uh, if we're talking about the web, it's the browser. So you could have um, like the matrix. It's kind of like the beaten path is like uh, Mac OS, VoiceOver, and Safari. That's going to be your your matrix. And then on Windows, it could be uh, Windows, JAWS, and Internet Explorer, or Windows, NVDA, which is a, another screen reader on Windows. Uh, JAWS is also a screen reader, sorry. And the browser for that for NVDA would be Firefox. And then it can just fork in any of those different combinations that you could possibly imagine that makes it hard to debug for. But that's why I think this is a cool programming problem is because we can build awesome tools to help us do this and test for it like X. Yeah. I would also argue that it's almost even more of a design problem. Yes. And that's part of the additional challenge is that we have to get our design friends and colleagues on board as well, because the more that they are thinking about it before they hand it off to us, the less we're going to be caught in these situations where we have to make it work in one browser and assistive technology, but then it's broken somewhere else because we're trying to use really experimental APIs or we're just trying to do things differently for the mouse versus the keyboard. And I can tell you that can be really difficult. So the, the more we're thinking about making things straightforward and intuitive from the design side, not to say the easier our job is going to be, but the more successful I think we can be as a team, because it's really, it's more than just development's responsibility. There's good resources for designers as well, uh, like web accessibility for designers. If you just Google that, there's a, a great checklist from WebAIM. And I think it's it's helpful to make it inclusive to people that we work with, not just in the development side, because we really want them to set us up for success or else we're really just fixing problems that, I don't know, not at their core. You know what I mean? Yeah. As they come down the pipe, we're kind of dealing with them instead of getting ahead of it. That reminds me, actually, of an experience that I had uh, pair programming with Rob probably about a year ago as we were making an interaction model for a select box. This was for a custom client, and we actually stripped it away, and we were like, okay, let's just focus on what is the state machine behind this thing. And so we drew it out on the board, and it turned out that it was kind of this, we were really just capturing the interaction apart from any rendering. Uh, And so we had a very strong model with each stage transition, we were able to basically radiate that information with a screen reader in this case. But it was it was actually very trivial to do because we'd actually kind of forgotten about the DOM, forgotten about the fact that this was – we were actually chasing a visual interaction uh, and like said, now what is like the actual user interaction? What is just – you know, what is the information coming in and coming out? And then it turned out once we kind of fleshed that out and had developed that – Hanging the interface on that skeleton was very easy, uh, and we could do it in multiple media. feels like a, a similar concept where if your designers are very upfront about 
really exploring the information architecture of an application, then being able to represent that information architecture in multiple forms becomes much easier because the joints and beams are very, very clear and they aren't bound to a particular form of representation. Yeah, I think in a way that that's definitely true. Um, one challenge I would issue for this part of uh, prototyping would be to consider all of the user inputs. So make sure that you're considering, you know, a, a keyboard user hitting the escape key to close that select, or mm. maybe they're using a, a screen reader on a touch device and you need like the single finger swipe is already allocated when that screen reader is running. So if you had an interface that was only swipe left or right, and there were no other affordances like buttons that you could mm -hmm. actually activate, that would be an unusable interface to a, a mobile screen reader user. So what really helps to make that information architecture stand up or, or hold out when you're developing it, like stay true to your vision through the process, is making sure that you're considering all of those user inputs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're, you know, developers aren't thinking about keyboard users, so they're not thinking about focus styles, really trying to activate it another way. So yeah, I do think that that's a helpful exercise. Yeah, and, and to be fair to front-end developers, we already have a lot to think about. We and do. Uh, yep. it's, it's just a lot to juggle, so like, I can understand. That's why we have like tools like X. But what Charles is talking about, I think it's actually kind of neat, is we were experimenting with accessibility-first development. So like people do TDD, test driven development. And I was trying to see if we could do, we could build something. I wanted to see if what we were writing would yield better software if we did it with an uh, accessibility in mind from the outset. And um, I think that's true. I think uh, we were able to, it wasn't even that it was a, better, a, mo a more accessible type of head. It was a just a better, more well-defined user experience around a type of head. And it was because we thought about accessibility and all the different edge cases. We really went, boiled it down to the core problem. Right. We were driving it first with keys and non-standard interaction methods. And it meant that we actually got a more clear interaction model lying underneath because it had to support, it was decoupled from like the actions that drove it cool. completely because we had to, we had to support two from the get go. thought that was neat. Yeah, it was, it was a, that was a fun exercise. You know, we should have blogged about that because I think that it actually results in better software. Yeah, yeah. do it. I had a conference talk brewing in there somewhere. <laughs> Just never got around to it. So yeah, so talking about uh, the, the web accessibility guidelines. So there's different levels to it. Uh, you have A, AA, and AAA. What do those mean and, and where does that play into with like ARIA roles and stuff? Yeah, so there's WCAG 2.0, and actually 2.1 is a, an update that they're working on right now, but uh, WCAG 2.0 Oh, is, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, there's, so there's some new stuff coming out. It's mainly for low vision users and mobile uh, and touch things, but... The WCAG 2.0 is sort of the you know blessed standard that we're working with right now. And the levels are different conformance levels. So there's different things that you can achieve with A, AA, or AAA. Most people go for AA. AAA is pretty restrictive in what you can do. And if you make it support uh, WCAG 2.0 AA, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be uh, intuitive to use. Like you could make it technically conformant, but it won't necessarily be that beautiful or accessible. So there's a bit of a, a dance that we have to do around that to meet these guidelines, but do them in an intentional way so that we're actually making something usable. Um, and I think that goes back right. to that, that idea of craftsmanship and caring about your user to know, is this actually going to work for them? So there's a number of success criteria in WCAG that are broken up into different categories. There's perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. And within each of those, 
there's all kinds of different checkpoints that you can look at to inform, how do I make this keyboard accessible? And there's all kinds of really helpful documentation. So that's the WCAG guidelines. And within each of those, there are a number of different ways that you can code something. As I'm sure you know, there are infinite ways to code the same thing, pretty much. (laughs) And part of what that covers is techniques for making things accessible. And so they'll tell you all about native HTML and what tools you can use within that standard. And then there's this other standard called WayArea, and it's the Web Accessibility Initiatives Accessible Rich Internet Applications. And that was originally created back in the day when we didn't have as many browser APIs and we didn't have great ways to expose accessibility information to screen readers. So they made this API in browsers that's implemented that you can actually bolt on some of the same information that you get from HTML. It's helpful if you're writing SVG or XML, or maybe you just don't have those built-in semantics. And so we have things like ARIA roles, states, and properties. You may have seen things like role equals button, or role equals main, you might see that somewhere, or role equals search. Mm -hmm. And that is just Mm -hmm. exposing a a programmatically bolting on a role to any element that you could put on, uh, you know, div role equals button. And there's a little more that goes into that to make it an accessible button. Anytime we mention... The tab index. Yeah, the tab index. (laughs) You'd have to make sure you have a keyboard event. Mm -hmm. But that would be a programmatic way to create a button element. You should always start with the native button element because you get all that stuff for free. But ARIA gives us an API to actually implement accessibility information. And so you'll see those techniques come up a lot in WCAG of, you know, how you can accomplish the same thing multiple ways. And so those are some of the things that we test for in our automated tests and acts. We check to make sure that you've only used roles that are actual roles because there is a set standard of them. (laughs) Uh, We check to make sure that all of the ARIA values that you might use are actually allowed for that. So sometimes it might be, you know, if you're using role equals list, for whatever reason, you can't use a real list. It is possible to create a list with ARIA, but if you had the wrong child role or something, that's a pretty easy thing that we can flag with Axe. So Mm. we're sort of saving you from yourself. (laughs) It helps me sometimes when I get a role wrong because we're human and we do make mistakes. There's a lot of things to remember. So that's a pretty key technique that Axe will help you with is making sure that your ARIA is used correctly. Because it is pretty easy. That's really nice. It is pretty easy to get it wrong, to be honest. Yes, uh, I've, I've definitely done that. Uh, <laughs> digging through the spec document is not the f- most fun. Trying to read like the standards language is a little bit complicated. So like having a tool like Axe is really helpful for me to kind of just like pick my way through it. Like, oh, Axe will tell me that this is wrong. So I can go and actually start like I, it narrows the problem set down for me where I can go and look at the standard and kind of tunnel vision in on that one rather than like I get overwhelmed looking at that whole standard documents like oh there's so much here <laughs> yes there is and there one thing that might help with that is an initiative that people are working on called the aria practices guide uh, or the aria authoring practices and it sort of breaks down these techniques into okay what is the keyboard navigation model for that component or it'll break it into known patterns oh so, This is really helpful also for designers to know what are some known patterns and how can I implement it accessibly. They can really help you jumpstart to using those patterns um, with this more easily digestible information um, to tell you how to do it correctly. So that has come up in the last few years that I've found really useful. 
That's awesome. Does it, I think I've seen this. Is it where they tell you, like, if you're going to re-implement a checkbox, here's how you would do it with ARIA? Exactly. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I've dropped a link in the chat, so we'll, sh- we'll expose that in the show notes, I'm sure. But yeah, there's more resources out there now that are really helpful. There's another one called ARIA in HTML, and that one's also from the W3C. And it's notes on using ARIA in HTML, and that one I found to be very useful as well because they tell you this you know, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth rules of ARIA use. And the first rule of ARIA use is if you can use a native HTML element or attribute, you should absolutely use the built-in one first. <laughs> so that's the big caveat yeah, let's whenever we're talking stop about Stop reinventing. It. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's tempting because you can create these custom elements and try to bolt on ARIA. But the reality is that if you're trying to make it really backwards compatible, it's just so much easier to support the native things. Like there is an assistive technology called Dragon Naturally Speaking that's a dictation method, and they didn't support ARIA until 2014. So you can easily oh, imagine wow. you can easily imagine some of your user base with an older assistive technology. It might be completely broken for them. Mm-hmm. So that's why we really push uh, using the native things first, just because of the better support on every platform. So I have a question about the test automation. So we've been talking a lot about Axe and the way that you can kind of do this, you know, did I get it right? Are my roles correct? All these things. What's an example of something that you just can't test for in an automated fashion? It just requires human interaction just to to, to perceive it. I mean, this would be, you know, right now kind of in the, the visual sphere, right? There's, you know, the, the state of automation for testing, like, did I break the layout is, you know, it still kind of requires a human. So what, what are examples of that in terms of an accessible interface where you just, these are things that you have to be on the lookout for that just, you know, you can't cover with automation right now. I think context and content are some of the most difficult. So like writing good alt text, That can be really challenging just because what makes a good alt for an image? Um, And and that's supposed to be Mm -hmm. a text alternative to say this is, you know, something useful. And Facebook has solved that by using artificial intelligence to dynamically guess what's in an image. So a blind colleague of mine that works there has written about, I mean, he works at Facebook and he said he always felt left out when he would read his newsfeed and someone would be talking about their first love or some kind of vague status update. And with this new feature, it could say, oh, this image that they're talking about, their, their love is a pepperoni pizza or something where (laughs) (laughs) you're really missing the context. So they've started to do automatic alt text for us doing uh, accessibility checks. We, we try to keep our solution as lightweight as possible and without false positives. So we can check whether you have an alt attribute missing, like you don't even have the, the alt attribute at all, which means that the file name would be read in the screen reader, which is often terrible, depending on what your file mm-hmm. names are. Uh, so we can check if that's missing, but we can't really tell you what would make a better alt attribute if you already have one. That one's a bit difficult. There's another one that we're working on right now with color contrast, where we can't really tell if you have a background image that's behind some text, if it has multiple pixel color values in it, like even if we could read those colors, which one, like it's really hard for us to say whether text meets color contrast when it's over an image for multiple reasons. So that one's a bit tricky. And I think there's some other examples throughout WCAG that, you know, we can only automate, 
I mean, depending on which rule set you're using, we, we estimate between, you know, 30 to 40% of issues we can actually catch with automated tests. And so there is quite a bit that we still need humans for. But however, mm-hmm. I think some of these really basic ones that we can check for help you, you know, do those easy wins so that you're not getting messed up by using the attribute aria dash role when it's just roll, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. Right. Like we're helping you so you can save that time for those more complex tasks that, that might require a human. So there's definitely no substitute for trying to use a keyboard to make sure that your app is usable from the keyboard. Test it with a screen reader. You can find people in the web accessibility Slack that might be willing to help you test it if you're extra nice, or maybe you could give them a gift card or something. There's a, an organization called Nobility, and they have this thing called AccessWorks, where if you need to find a user with a disability to do some user testing for you, because that's a great thing to do, very, Ooh, yeah. very Absolutely. important, they can help you as a business uh, sync up with someone who can test your app. So I would definitely check out AccessWorks, because that's really what the missing piece. Like if, if I, as a developer... Like, I'm okay using a screen reader after doing accessibility for a few years, but it's not my primary way of navigating. So it's really helpful to have real users test your app, and that's a good way to find someone to actually test it. It sort of, like, makes up the rest so you can get that really valuable feedback. I'm a firm believer in, uh, in like, the testing, but also uh, I I really do think um, a lot of accessibility work is just kind of empathy building. And uh, the way you, you do that is to like sit down and actually use the assistive tech that these people will be using. That way you can understand uh, as you're building it how somebody might like move their screen reader cursor over the top of this and you can start to think about like what the screen reader read off and stuff like that. I think using a screen reader as a developer is powerful. But yeah, I agree. Like we'll never reach the level like my mom has been using a screen reader for seven years now. So I'll never be able to use it as well as she does. So actually putting it in the hands of people that do this day to day and live this is a far better idea. And and that, that goes beyond accessibility too, right? Like you want to user test all your apps anyways. Yeah, exactly. I think that is a <laughs> that should be a big thing that we demand just from our organizations. Like it's sort of like testing how you were saying it was kind of controversial. I feel like user testing is another flavor of that where we have a bit of uh, emotional tie to these things that we create and we want them to be perfect in the way that we envisioned but would not everyone interacts with things the same and it's really humbling to watch someone use something that you made and have them completely not get it at all i think that that's a really (laughs) valuable experience like i've watched my mom or my dad or you know people try to use something that we assume is really intuitive and it's just not like we look at the web all day and day in and day out being professionals. And so it's really, it's helpful to show it to people who maybe aren't as fluent, you know, aren't digital natives like that. We talked about actual user testing. We talked about kind of the checking where you render your application and, you know, you run a set of checks do you have any experience with actually, uh, and this is kind of an idea that just occurred to me, although it's we did a little bit of it um, when we were doing native applications, is using the accessible interfaces to actually drive your acceptance tests. Um, is that anything that you have experience with? Because it seems like on the face of it, right, you've got this assistive technology that kind of surfaces key the key levers of your application. And so, you know, is it a good idea to grab those levers from within your test case? 
like from within your acceptance test to manipulate your application uh, and thereby kind of front load your accessibility? Because in order to verify it, you must have those levers in place. Yeah. So if I'm understanding your question correctly, you're wanting to just like run your tests using accessibility features. Yeah. So like, for example, when we write our acceptance tests in our application, what we do is we, you know, as part of setting them up, we'll say, we want, I want to click here and I want to enter this text into this text box and I want to, you know, move this over here. And that implies actually dispatching mouse events, keyboard events, and then also being able to find the elements in the DOM that I want to dispatch those events on. And so we're kind of doing it in a, an ad hoc. I think we use CSS selectors to find them. And then we use the jQuery event interface to actually create the events and you know send them to those elements. But it seems like part of like you know ARIA roles or, or, or something else is like identifying the role that this element has in your application and you know basically saying, okay, for my test cases, I'm going to use... Uh, these roles or I'm going to use these things and I'm going to, uh, I don't know, maybe use like different access methods, keyboard, mouse or whatever to um, manipulate my interface. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think this makes sense in the native world where like in order to get the label, I think you Mm -hmm. have to use the accessibility uh, label. They do that when you're like functionally testing iOS apps. So like, why not? Does it port to the yeah, web? Yeah, does that basically. port to the web? It does. That's a really long-winded way of saying that, I guess. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. y'all. No, and, I, <laughs> and I wanted to clarify because I was wondering if you were talking about like driving it with actual assistive technology, which we can't quite yet. Uh, we don't have any tools for that. But yes, you Ooh. should. You should abs- we explored that in Ember. Yeah, it's uh, they, we just don't have the hooks for that. Maybe Python and MVDA, since it's open source. Maybe AppleScript. So what would that? What would that look like to drive it with assistive technologies? We talked to some people at Apple for um, Ember access, the Ember accessibility team, and if I remember correctly, we could only kind of do it through. Ex, uh, we could drive voiceover on mac os with apple scripts but there was no way to do it any other way so you only could do it with voiceover on mac os and that was still kind of murky yep exactly so the idea would be that rather than just testing the browser we would actually be able to you know run a simulator programmatically to know is the screen reader actually exposing this information Mm because a lot of it is you know, there are things that get lost in translation sometimes where we're doing it, we're following best practices and standards because that's what we sort of have this agreement that people who implement browsers and screen readers are going to follow those standards. It definitely Hmm. is not always uh, smooth sailing with that. But there's sort of this disconnect between the browser testing and then actually firing it up in the screen reader to make sure it worked. We take that on faith a lot of time, um, which is getting back to your original question why it's so valuable to have tests that use these uh, interaction methods. So absolutely, either in your unit tests or even in your integration tests, they can live in either place. To have tests that assert, you know, it closes with the escape key or it operates with the inner key or whatever that user interaction should be, that we have tests that assert that. Because that way, you know, if you leave your team or heaven forbid you get hit by a bus or something, you have test coverage that makes a contract of how this component should work. And you have accessibility support actually built into your test infrastructure. So yeah, that is super valuable. Then at least we know that that part of it is there. Like we know we can drive it from the keyboard, uh, which is how a lot of screen readers work. They, they, you know, operate on top of the keyboard 
Um, and so we can get really far just by having basic keyboard support. Um, and then if you pull in an API like Xcore, you can have it tell you if you were using ARIA wrong or something. So it's sort of a combination mm -hmm. of both where those feature tests in your actual project where you're writing something to assert that it works with the escape key, those are custom tests for your application. And I find that they're really valuable just to have in there, especially if you work on a component library or something reusable, um, so that everybody who's mm -hmm. contributing knows how this thing is supposed to work. So I think that is really valuable. Absolutely. I want to talk about accessibility in single page apps. I know in Ember, uh, we have a solution. Um, so like kind of the problem with accessibility in, in, in single page apps is well, using a screen reader, you click a link and to the screen reader user, all it says is the link was pressed. They don't actually know that the content has changed. But like in Ember, we kind of solve this by focusing the, the route or the outlet that has changed. But in other frameworks and in, in, in your experience everywhere else, um, how do you combat this? And like, what are the, the best ways of um, yeah, what, like are the, attacking this. what are the problems that you encounter in, in single-page applications? Yeah, so I've done quite a bit of research and blogging and conference talks on this, uh, working on the Angular team for a while. So the, the issue with a single-page app is that the page isn't being refreshed when you make a routing change or something happens dynamically. And so the user is never, like their focus is never refreshed to the top of the page, so they don't hear a title change or things like that. Um, so there's different techniques that you can employ to make that experience more accessible. The first and foremost tool to have in your toolbox is focus management so that the, you're actually, you know, programmatically sending the user's focus to this new content. So say I have a sidebar with links in it and I click one of them, I could send focus to content wherever it loaded on the page. So that way they're both alerted to the new content, because depending on where you send it, there's different techniques for this, but often we will send focus to the wrapping element so that everything will be read aloud. And you can accomplish that by using tab index of negative one in your HTML. So that will make this wrapper catch the focus essentially, but it won't add it to the tab order of the entire page. So that's a technique that we use to sort of shuffle focus around. But I've also seen people use what's called an ARIA live region, where you have this element somewhere on your page that's not visible. It's, it has to be rendered, so you can't use display none, but you can basically pipe messages to these live regions to announce what's happening on the screen. So I've actually, I just saw a React example where they put an ARIA live um, attribute just on that wrapping element instead of the focus management. So anytime new content went into that element, it would just mm. be announced. The challenge with that is that you can't always control everything on the page. Like that works if you control everything and you know th that only this one element is getting updated at a time. But often we work in this big ecosystem where there's a bunch of things happening. So depending on how complex your app is, you might need some sort of a focus manager, some sort of a, a utility that will keep track of what's focused and sort of route it around to the correct place. So that's your the biggest tool for creating accessible single page apps is focus management. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only for the reading content purpose, but also to have their focus in the more accurate place so that then if they hit tab or they try to start interacting with something, that they're in the right part of the page. So a good example, if you think about like a modal window, a modal window might open as a new layer over something. That requires mm -hmm. focus management on open so that your focus is sent into it, either to the first focusable element or to the wrapper. 
Um, and then when you hit escape or close the modal, it should send your focus back. To the previously focused element, right? Exactly, yeah. And that makes it so that if you are using a keyboard and you can't actually use a trackpad or a mouse to get back, that you're in the right place. Or if you're a screen reader user and you can't even see the screen, then you're always in the right spot. So that's it's actually, I think, really cool. and something that's become more commonplace with dynamic JavaScript apps is that we can do these really cool focus management techniques. I, I think they're really cool. They can be challenging, but that is a, something that we definitely need to think about as developers of single page apps. Absolutely. Especially since um, none of the, the single page app frameworks out there or libraries, actually, maybe with the exception of uh, your work on Angular, they don't come with a router focus library built in. So this is something that you have to actually think about and then pull in and do yourself. Does Angular have it by default? No, we never added a focus manager um, utility. There were some things to try and clean up bad HTML, which ended up being honestly worse than <laughs> than the original problem. But I've written a blog post about focus management techniques. I, I just dropped it in the chat. There's a Smashing Magazine article I wrote, and it really is framework agnostic. So it sort of covers mm-hmm. all of the things that you need to think about if you're writing a client-rendered application using Ember, or React, or Angular. So yeah, it is something that we have to think about as developers, because from the framework level, it's impossible to know what the right situation would be in your app in a given moment. And so we can only get so far with magic at the framework level. So it's mm-hmm. something I would like to see more of if maybe if there is some sort of a layer manager, I think that that is a, a tool that someone could write that would be super useful to make sort of an intelligent layer managing system for focus management. I've heard the Facebook mm. team talk about how they do it internally but it's not open source. And so I have yet to see sort of an open source solution for this. So we sort of all have to tackle it, you know, in our own apps. But once you know that that's a thing, um, you can really make sure that you're covering it. And if you have someone with a disability, a visual disability or impairment, try to use your app, they'll probably uncover that problem pretty quickly. So that's the value of user testing in case you forget or Maybe there's a few views that need you need to sell it. Yeah, or maybe with your application, um, if you don't have visible focus styles turned on, you might not see that the focus isn't being sent. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that is one trick I will tell you in development. If you're working with focus management, turn the focus outlines on, and then you can see if, like, you were trying to send focus before it got fully rendered or something, because it has to actually be rendered to catch the focus. So Mm -hmm. that is a good, maybe like a debug flag if you can't all agree on the focus styles (laughs) for all users. I found that to be really useful in our app, just to have those turned on so you can debug it. Make it really loud. Like this is a giant red outline. Yeah. Then (laughs) then you know if you forgot to add Tamindex of negative one to make it catch the focus or like I said, Mm -hmm. maybe there's a rendering thing where you need to wait a tick by using a set timeout or something. That, That is a good technique that I've used recently. Awesome. So like basically what it boils down to in single page apps is manage your focus Yeah. and <laughs> enhance your focus, some might say. Yeah, I mean, it's, think about keyboard ergonomics. Like if you are doing things dynamically on the screen mm-hmm. and then you want to start typing, like the most common example I see is autofocus. Like developers, even if they aren't thinking about accessibility, they'll ask for autofocus. So that in a way is focus management. The mm-hmm. difference with autofocus is that you can only use it once and it will send your focus there automatically 
But in a similar way, I mean, that's sort of the idea of what we want is to get the user's focus point into the right spot so that they can do the right activity on the screen and they know what content they're looking at. Right. So like I sometimes try to relate uh, like navigating around a website with your keyboard as like power users who have like Vim or Emacs users like or anybody that's a power user of a computer that doesn't like to leave the home row. You can make your application awesome for you to use and also uh, lay the groundwork for accessibility uh, if you can navigate your website with just a keyboard. Exactly. That's how yeah. I try to pitch it to people that way. Like it's, it's still a developer problem. I, I like that uh, because it really highlights the fact that there is this kind of deep interaction model. The user actually is focused on one thing at a time in mm-hmm. the application. And if you track that, then it's going to be a benefit for all of your users, right? If you are deliberate about thinking... Like this is the subject of interest at this moment, and you know you're you're just going to reap a lot of benefit mm-hmm. for everybody. Keep coming back to it. Uh, building yeah. accessible applications yields a better application for everybody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. It might enable you to support some like futuristic device that you haven't even thought of yet. If you yeah. <laughs> VR, yeah, if you have your actions decoupled from the actual input and you can do everything declaratively, that really makes it easier to try and support use cases you haven't thought of. Like, oh, we need to wire yeah. up that other keyboard combination or some touch device that <laughs> it just really helps to not have everything buried in a jQuery event. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, oh man, I need to call that same function from multiple events. Crap. <laughs> I need to decouple that real quick. Mm-hmm. Let's abstract this. Right, yeah. right. Well, all right. I think we're about at time. I know you've got uh, a hard stop. You've got some skiing to do. I do. <laughs> so uh, so we will let you get up on the mountain. But thank you so much for coming by. This has been a great conversation. Yes. Thank you for dropping all the knowledge. Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling lots of knowledge right on top of my head. Uh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that I got to go process. Um, but for everybody else out there, I would say go experiment with Axe. The idea is it's going to be easy for developers. I know I am going to experiment with it. And then you said there was a browser extension as well to help you out and probably call out every website that you ever use, right? I'm dropping some links for you just now. Oh, yeah. That's going to be, there's some links to go along with the knowledge. So <laughs> go check them out. And you are at Marcy Sutton on Twitter? That is correct. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming by. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm.